Hello everyone, my name is Ian Hayden-Smith and I'd like to welcome you to this special AMPS podcast celebrating the nominees for the 2024 AMPS Film Awards. I'm here with two members of the same team who worked on The Zone of Interest, whose production process is quite unlike any film made this or pretty much any other year. So I'd like to welcome re-recording mixer, sound designer and supervising sound editor Johnny Byrne and production sound mixer Tarn Willers. Hello both. Hello, Ian. Hi. Hi. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having us. Great. Thanks for joining us today. Um, so I want to start with the, with the big overview of, of the film. And I know it's been said in, in lots of articles and, and we've spoken previously, Johnny, about this. This idea that the zone of interest was in a way designed as two films. So perhaps we could start with what film one was and then move on to film two. Sure, it was. It, it's a film with a stark contrast between between what you see in here, and that's why John and I always thought of it as there being two films. And um, and and film one, seeing as you asked, is it's the family drama, and and this is one half of the juxtaposition upon which the film sits. And it's 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 the the Hoss family. Who, Rudolf Hoss was the camp commander of Auschwitz, and he he built his family life um, on the perimeter fence of Auschwitz. And film one is 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 everything that's kind of inside the house and the garden, and it's a, it's a naturalistic representation, almost documentary style of, of of a family milling about their life, and and the the interesting sound aspect of that that Don I think should tell us about is is how is how all the sound was, um, you know, the the primary goal was not recording the dialogue as it normally would be on a film. It was. It was to hear people in a house. It was like to be the big brother thing, and it, and it was, and there were a lot of challenges within that, weren't there, Tom? There were, there were indeed. Uh, yeah, as Johnny said, it was. Uh, well, it was a surprise when I when I met Jonathan um, Glazer, and he explained the way he was going to shoot this film with ten cameras, and they were going to roll constantly and all at the same time, and everything would be in vision. And so immediately, I you know, we had this thought: it's like Big Brother. It's like you know, it's like shooting something like Big Brother. We can't have boom operators. We can't have anybody in the house. I asked him, you know, about the dialogue. It's all going to be in German. And he said, but the dialogue is not the most important thing. It's, it's, you know, it's not like a normal film where I get told to get the dialogue and get rid of everything else as much as I pos- as much as is possible. This one was, yeah, the dialogue, yeah, the dialogue but I want to hear every single detail of everything else that happens in the house. Oh, okay. So the, 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 the gauntlet was thrown down right there in front of me. I think you described it to me, Tan, as there being, as John saying, um, I've, I've got 10 hidden cameras and, and you've got to hide all the microphones. Don't want any crew on set. Um, takes might be up to an hour long because that's the length of the memory stick. The actors won't know what, what mark there is, or they'll just free to ad lib around the room. But I want to hear the sound from the camera uh, position for every single camera, and I won't choose until I'm in post production what I want to hear. And it will be a live, real house, not a set build, so everything will be noisy. Oh, and there'll be a dog and a baby. Yeah, he said. <laughs> he said. He said all of those things in my very first meeting with him, which was on a screen, on a screen in a Zoom meeting. You know, and uh, I'd never met the man before, and he rolled out all of that, and then just simply said, "So, Tom, how are you going to get? This? How are you going to get the sound?" 
And that was kind of my interview for the job with Jonathan Glazer. I think you were, gonna, you were the only one who was it? still on the end of the line after he'd said that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I was like, can I call a friend? <laughs> so let's, let's just, before we come on to the, 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 the sort of second film, let's zone in on, on something that's interesting here. Um, Sandra Hullo. Uh, playing Hedwig, the the wife of the camp commandant, gives this amazing performance. And you compare her to the other film that she's being nominated for a lot, Anatomy of a Fall. Um, she she carries the weight of the world. It appears it's it's an extraordinary physical performance. And in terms of sound, what I find amazing is you have these hard surfaces in the house, and more often than not, just the 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 sort of fashions and the necessities of a time, hard heels, hard soles hitting those floors. But at the same time, you have the waiting staff who have to be absolutely careful to be as quiet as they possibly can, sort of fleet-footed around characters like Hedwig. That alone is an incredible challenge. Well, normally I would, in so much as I can, I would have the floor covered with you know, mm. rubber back carpets to, to remove all the sound of the walking, the clip clop of the heels. Things would be stuck down on trays so t- cups and saucers don't rattle. And all, all of those are the noises that we would ordinarily get rid of. Jonathan wanted to hear every single, every single detail, everything. Don't get, don't get rid of anything. And her performance. So, the shoes, the shoes were the shoes that were chosen for her to wear. They were the, they were the shoes appropriate to, you know, that's how those shoes would have sounded in that house at that time. It was real. Everything had to be as real as it would be. It, it, it's not a representation of something. It, yeah. It's as close to it being as it was, as it could possibly be. So which involved costume designers, costume team. It involved the production designers. It, it you know, it, the, the, the prep for it was conversations between all of the departments in terms of how everything could be as real as possible. We, we actually spent two days before uh, filming started uh, recording Foley in the house, just so we had it for later, all the footsteps and doors and everything. But it turned out for the most part, we didn't need it at all. <laughs> it, it was all, we, we came up, Tan and I did a load of testing beforehand and, um, yeah. You know, with uh, ambisonic mics and all, all sorts of things to discover, you know, ambisonic plus lab, would that be the right thing? And and we ended up actually realising that splitting every ceiling up into four quadrants and having a, a 416 in pointing down on a gooseneck at the wherever the action was most likely to be um, would, would pretty much cover it for every for every scenario. So we essentially we mic'd up, we mic'd up the house. Uh, and, you know... The budget is not; it wasn't extraordinary. Um, so I. Oh, you had a budget for VFX to remove, to remove yeah. mics from the ceiling. That was probably bigger than the than the mic wiring up budget. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I had fifty mic points. My my team spent two weeks running cables in the house, around the house, getting them wallpapered and painted in as much as we could, and everything. We ended up with 50, 50 XLR connectors to be connected in the garden or in the house or in the greenhouse or wherever the action would go. But I didn't have 50 mics because the budget wouldn't provide 50 mics for me. So we had to be selective and yeah. choose according to what, according to what we saw. Um, See, what yeah. I, find, I find quite incredible, by any other standards, this alone would, would be quite an extraordinary feat. But then we have film two, 
which which is solely this this audio track. Could you could you talk about that? Yeah. Can I just say yeah. that film too? I was I was unaware of <laughs> while we were filming. Really? Obviously, I mean, I knew it was going to happen, but when we were making the film, I made a film, you know, about a family at, at, at home in their house. So we were making a family which involved a, a film about, you know, picnics in the garden and kids playing and things. This film, the, the other film that Johnny's going to tell you about, we weren't aware of at all. It was a wholly different environment for us. Yeah, John remarked to me that on the shoot, some of the, the, the Polish crew were sort of saying things like, when are you going to film the bad stuff, you know? And, and he was like, oh, Johnny Burns, gonna, we'll hear that. And, and Sandra told me that when she saw the film, you know, the, the final film, she was, I mean, absolutely stunned, you know, and she had no idea that it was going to work quite like that, even despite, and, and that resonated with me completely because John and I spoke about it. Um, you know, logically beforehand, how we might try and achieve it, but the experience of watching, watching it for real, that constant juxtaposition, did really fool me. But um, yeah, so to explain, film two, film two was was basically um, it, it's a horror film, really, and it's it's the the sound of mass genocide, and it's the sound um, it's the sound of the camp of Auschwitz, and it's what comes over the wall. In, into the Hoss family life that they choose to ignore. And and that's really the premise on which the whole film sits. And and it was a very careful balance, sort of fine-tuning that in so it wasn't too much. But, um, and really how it came about was, um, uh, yeah, I mean, a few years before, well, certainly d- during Making Under the Skin, John and I understood a lot about how we like to make sound on film and, and that uh, immersion came from sort of credibility in sound more than, um, sensational sound or anything, and um, particularly with his sort of rather, you know, documentary style. And and so, um, and he said, yeah, I, we're going to make a film about the the Martin Amos book, The Zone of Interest, and 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 we're only ever going to hear and hear the camp. You know, I don't want to sensationalise anything that happened with the Holocaust. So I believe this is a good way of telling the story again and making sure the story gets told without without ever showing actually having to show the horrors. Which, which keeps a respectful distance, we believe, for you know, for the victims and their families, and um, and and so he said, uh, you know, here's a script, and I said, oh my god, and sort of panicked because the responsibility of sound to uh, to be respectful, but also to carry off the whole kind of juxtaposition of the film, and 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 I said, right, well, we need to know everything about what Auschwitz sounded like in 1943, and. And that began um, almost a year's research on my part um, with, uh, you know, we had access to the, I mean, obviously there's a lot of material available online and and, uh, and I read an awful lot of literature and novels and on the matter and, and witness testimony was, was the main thing. And, and, and the witness testimony from, from the um, Auschwitz Memorial archives that we had access to and, and drawings as well, which provided a lot of sort of information about, um, about what happened there. So really it was, um, getting all the um, period-specific, uh, you know, vehicles and and reconnaissance planes and all those sort of things, and understanding the nature of, that we heard of the place, but more importantly, understanding what happened between the guards and the prisoners, and and to be able to uh, represent in sound though in many many different scenarios, and uh, and and to be able to use that as a resource for when we came to want to marry film two onto film one. So, um, you know, John said, right, I'm going to go and do this. I'm going to go and shoot the film. And that was, 
you know, in, in summer the year before last. And, and he's, and I said, great, well, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go and record all the sound that we need, you know, and I'll, I'll see you in post-production sort of thing was pretty much it. Or, I mean, you know, obviously my team were, Tom went to great lengths to record a lot of additional sound that was, that was, um, useful for film too. And, and, you know, notably, for example, the birds that, that begin the film out of Mika's music. Um, but, but I, I pretty much spent about a year researching and then, and then six months gathering sound that, that we could use because, um, interestingly, sort of almost remarkably for a film that uses sound in such an extraordinary way, it didn't marry the film until, you know, about a year into post almost like, we 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 literally made film one. We we you know John filmed it and then we went we edited it together and then we did a sound mix on it and and we were like okay that's tight and you know and that was important to do it that way because obviously you know they're, they're ignoring it so and so it was only then we're you know about six months from the end that we because your your <laughs> post production on it was like a year and a half which is quite short for a Jonathan Glazer movie uh, but <laughs> yeah so. We didn't put any of that sound on until we had the family drama sewn up, really. So let's talk about the, this idea of marrying the two together. Um, so classical narrative is not something, a phrase that I ever use normally in association with a Jonathan Glazer film. And, and the idea of a three-act structure is not... Is, you can tell there's a sense that looking at his earlier films, it's something that he's trying to not rebel against, but just not f- to fall into any sort of cliches. But it did strike me, thinking about the way that these two are mixed together, was there any discussion about the the tonality um, in, in the marrying of the two? Or was it literally just we're layering it on top and no matter what sounds come out at which point, that, that's how they're going to stick? Um, well, it was, I mean, it was very much a discovery. And I think with... With John, it's interesting that you should say that you know he doesn't want to. It appears he doesn't want to fit into any formula because he definitely doesn't. And I would say that uh, <clears throat> he's a remarkable filmmaker because, from my experience, he he can quite happily pivot an entire movie upon something he finds interesting on that day, and, and that could be during post production or, or the shoot or anything. You know, he's quite happy to suddenly realize that everything he did, you know, for two weeks has been uh, pointless. So. So yeah, he he definitely wants to um, make take extraordinary decisions and take us into an unusual genre. So, um, so yeah, it, the process of putting it together was. Um, I mean, we were aware um, that we wanted the the sounds of the of the house to have a, a you know we we gave we very much gave that quite a reverberant. You're either in a house or you're next to a wall that has a lot of slap echo on it, and 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 we wanted the sound of the camp to sound different and very much you know kind of longer reverby distant mid-range sound with um so we knew that we knew that we had um a different sort of palette for each one but but the the process of putting it together and finding where everything went was uh purely trial and error really and 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 at first we felt the the most natural way to do it was just randomly so i sort of just randomly dragged things onto the timeline and then we'd listen to it and see what we felt about that and Tan, what was it like for you? I just, just finding a way of, of sort of these points where, with of merging the two sounds and and finding the balance between the two or the imbalance. When we were filming the the kind of family, the suburban family drama, we were 
obviously we know the I've read the script and we know the story, but in terms of marrying the marrying things up, it was it 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 didn't really apply to us. We were we were concentrating on getting the details of of everything we were doing day on a day to day, without. I mean, I did I didn't know what was coming afterwards. I didn't you know until I actually saw the film. I had no idea how this film was going to sound. So it's it for us to marry things up. It, it there wasn't really a process of that for us. We were we were purely about capturing what we could on the day, and it, it wasn't. Bear in mind that you're going to hear these screams, or bear in mind that there's going to be this industrial incineration noise up behind you. All that 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 we we had none of that, thankfully. Two of the things I'd like to talk about with the contrasts of of the two soundtracks. Um, first of all, the garden party. You've got the children going in and out of the small swimming pool. You've got lots of different dialogue happening around the garden. You then have a separate conversation um, between Rudolph and Hedrick that, that that feels incredibly intimate. At the same time, this this nightmare is is still going on in the background. Um, was that a challenge bringing that scene together, or again, was it one of those things that you just had the one sound, soundtrack sorted and you layered the other on top? Yeah, it was a nightmare. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> there, was, there was also the the camp orchestra is in that scene as well. The you know we recorded actually in a in a back alley in Soho at um, three a.m. outside of my building there, but um, as you do, <laughs> as you do, but to get the kind of right reverb, um, we recorded. The camp orchestra with just a selection of, uh, you know, with with solo instruments, and we put it all together later. But but um, but yeah, the so the camp orchestra would would play. Um, they were they were used to play um, marching music to to get the prisoners in and out, and and also it was documented that on Rudolph's birthday he would make them play, um, you know, play music then as well. And so and so that party was actually his birthday, and. Um, and yeah, and, and yeah, it's crazy. I mean, there's an intimate scene of dialogue and, and it's, you know, really stressful for them, what they're talking about and kids screaming and, and the sounds of the camp and the train and the constant sound of, of the furnace. I mean, yeah, we, I mean, that's why the mix took months, really. You know, we, we, it was, it was really bizarre. And every time, um, we found that if we played the mix from the beginning of, from, you know, from halfway through the film, it would all sound too loud and, and everything was out of place. And it was only, you know, if we wanted to actually truly judge what the film was doing mix-wise, we'd have to play it from the beginning every time in order to recognise, um, you know, in a very, uh, in, a, in really mirroring the whole, uh, con- you know, the th- point of the film, we were dialing it out much like they were. But um, I would say, yeah, it was what really helped with that scene was actually giving, when I gave the kids a lot of reverb and made them echoing around, then, then that put them in a very specific space, and then had the Tan's great recordings of of um, Christian and Sandra, and and that made them you know stand out and really pop, really. And and the train is always background, and the and the camp is always background. So, but on on that, if I can just add, uh, thanks for the compliment, John, about the recordings. <laughs> if, if I can just add about the, I mean, it, it was a difficult scene for us as well to capture on set before Johnny had to then do all these layers with the orchestra and so on, as he's just explained. Because, again, ordinarily, if you're shooting with, I don't know, one or two or maybe three cameras, then the kids aren't always in shot. And when they are in shot, you can ask them to not scream, Mm. like play and mime, don't scream, because we've got to get this 
it is one of the most important. It's one of the times where the dialogue was crucial to the movie because it's the it's the it's the moment he explains that he's been transferred away, isn't it? Mm. And and we need to we need to hear that. And ordinarily, you know, we were we would get the kids quiet. We'd have the water turned off from the from the shower thing in the swimming pool as much as possible. We we'd eradicate all of that. But no, Jonathan Glazer decides he's going to put ten cameras there. And everything's in vision all the time. And if the kids scream, that's kids screaming. React. He tells he tells everybody. So what would you do if kids are screaming? They're having a good time. Get on with it. Yeah, we're shooting it with ten cameras. So for us, it was it was okay. We've got to capture this dialogue, but all this stuff's going on as well. Don't get wound up by it. Don't like just step outside your normal your normal what modus operandi, I suppose. And, and and get with the Glazer program. <laughs> yeah, that's so case in point because that's exactly you know he he just throws challenges the whole time. He's like, no, no, we're not gonna. And we're like, can we uh, can we wild track it after? Don't be stupid. <laughs> you know, no, we don't, that's not real. And for him, it's all about um, making sure that uh, that the actors and 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 that and the production and everyone has done gone to their best extent to to totally recreate whatever it is we're trying to make, and then you film that. And and so if kids scream, then kids scream, and and we'll deal with the problem of that later. Basically, although you don't always, all the time, do exactly what Jonathan Glazer says. Do oh yeah, pinch of salt. Yeah, there was there was you know <laughs> these child these children are non-actors. Tarn, uh, I don't want you going near them with paraphernalia like radio mics and things like that because it's going to freak them out. And I want them I want them to be real and natural. And I have a phone call with Johnny and say, John doesn't want me to put mics on the kids. How? how, how how am I going to get anything? And Johnny says, "Put mics on the kids, Tom." <laughs> Just don't tell John. <laughs> I've known I've known John because I didn't know John. You see, Johnny's 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 inside there, and so he's like, "Listen, I'll deal with it. Put mics on the kids. Of course, you're putting mics on the kids." <laughs> and of course, John won't be listening in on this conversation whatsoever. No. Well, what's crucial yeah, yeah. is he thinks that there aren't mics on the kids, so he's <laughs> he's relaxed on set. <laughs> what we ha- what we ended up having to do was put mics on all the kids so it was fair to all the kids so that you didn't have one kid going, oh, what's this, what's this? Oh, it's my... Yeah. And after, like, one day, none of them cared. They just came and waited for a mic. They, 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 they weren't interested in the mics at all anyway. So on, I want to jump to the other end of a scale in terms of the mix and, and sound and the, and the individual sounds to two nighttime scenes. First of all, could you talk about the scene with the girl with the apples? And, I mean, it, it, that... The Christmas, I was so surprised the first time I saw the film of uh, uh, the Christmas and clarity of that sound and, and how uneasy it made me feel. Yeah, I mean, there's um, that's one scene that does have a bit of Foley in it because we we wanted to, when we got into post, we we felt that uh, the whole point of that scene is it's different and it's such a benevolent act and it, and it really could be, um, uh, you know, on a different planet. And... Um, and for the first time in the film, you're not in mid shot. You're sort of almost in POV of of her, and and so so yeah. There's you know we we went and recorded a lot of putting apples in dirt. You know the whole perspective of underneath the you know the the, the wooden bench thing where you know she hides the apple and and all of that. But but um, but yeah, it was really crucial in that to hear her breath and and uh, all the other sound. But what was your experience of recording that time? Well. Uh... It's interesting you bring that one up because that's the 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 scenes with with the girl and the thermal imaging camera were slightly different in that the thermal imaging camera was extremely noisy. It had this huge fan that that 
that kept it cool that that went with it. Yeah, it was a because, military camera, not a film yeah, camera. It, it's it's right. it's not a camera made for film. It's a as Johnny said, it's a military camera. So what we had to do was we we filmed everything you see in vision, and then we replicated it again for sound only. And she she did exactly the same thing as an, as another take for us, where we were able to get in a bit closer. That's why I remember doing loads of editing on it. Then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because we couldn't you, you we couldn't use the takes that you see. No, that's why. Right. Yeah, simply but you... because the the camera the camera was so noisy. It yeah, was yeah. this huge whooshing, whooshing fan noise, kind of mechanical noise. Although you you've probably thrown that in a mix somewhere, haven't you? At the camera. <laughs> um, so we we got her to and literally. She she replicated every move, every apple, every footstep. We did it again. Everybody stood. And we were shooting those scenes at, you know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning. Everybody stood around in this village in Poland uh, where, where we filmed it silently while, while she just basically replicated everything she did. And then... Another um, a series of scenes that I'm really fascinated with, and it's it's coming back to the 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 ambient sound of this house, of um, Hedwig's mother late at night, where the the skies being lit up, and then and I think it's an earlier scene with one of the sons, um, and again it's it's that second soundtrack and the way it interacts this time with the silence of of the world of film one. Could you could you both talk a little bit about that, please? Go on, Tom. Mm. Silence. <laughs> I mean, le- less is more, right? <laughs> yep. Less is more. It's, it's, what can I say? I don't know. The silence makes this film the outlier when you look at the other nominations that we're, <laughs> that we're grouped together with, doesn't it? They, you know, most of the other films are kind of, you know, they're big and spectacular and loud. And we're this outlier because there's silence. There's a silence that gives us all a pause for thought. And yet it gives us also that vast gulf of a sense of the horror. Yeah, I mean... It's, it's both intimate and something incredibly large. Well, you're yeah. filling it up with your own mental imagery, that silence. Yeah. That's the, that bit of the kids, the, um, the, the uh, Hans, when he's on the bunk um, about 20 minutes into the film, and he, makes, he mimics the sound that he hears out the window. Yeah. That was the first sound that I made on the film because... I was working on Nope and I, I came back home for two weeks and I had and I met up with John and uh, Paul and, and the editor and they were just beginning editing. And he said, one sound that will really help us is, you know, we need to hear the crematoria. And and we've got this lovely shot of of the young boy and you know, he's mimicking what he hears. Can you? And I said, OK, I'll make something that sounds like what he was hearing. And, and I, I did that with my own chimney and a cardboard and a microphone and wafted flames and stuff. And it was and then I, I made that. Uh, and I gave him like a 15 minute version of it where I varied it and played around with it. And, and, and that was, you know, the thing that you kind of, that you hear outside the bedroom window that you mentioned when the mother is there at night and, and it's a large part of the constant sound of the, I mean, you know, it was, it was actually, we, we, it, it originally was only on that scene and then the nighttime scene with the mother, but um, there was a, a point at which halfway through kind of sound post that we, thought in fact john said why don't we just try that on the whole film because you know that's the whole camp so um so that became like an enormous part of it but but yeah it's um and what we found was really interesting about that was it allowed us to be incredibly descriptive and fill your imagination and force the constant juxtaposition the whole premise of the film and make that a constant but without having to resort to sort of sensationalized sound 
but you know screams and bangs and things too often being on set that was i know in some of the talks that jonathan's done himself he you know and and, and the actors as well have referred to you know the proximity of, of the camp the real camp i mean we filmed it you know not more than 100 meters away from where the reality of all this occurred uh and so the the moments like that shooting those scenes they really they really were moments that that even on set when you're make when you when you know you're making a film you know you're on a set but sometimes it becomes a bit more than that and they were that's an example of a moment where it really gave you a moment to think about you kind of across the line from just being the you know the sound mixer listening to some action mm-hmm. being played out before me it was it was a, a what's the word i'm looking for it was a, a kind of a moment of reflection if you like on set live of you could you could easily place yourself in there mm. um so they were quite they were quite um intense moments as well i think what's extraordinary having having now seen the film three times is this sense of of having these two films pulling you into this environment while at the same time being aware of what an extraordinary achievement um, this is and, and what you've done, what Johnson's done as a whole, but what's been done with with the sound throughout the whole of his film. And Johnny and Tans, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Thank you, Ian. Thank you for your time. Thank, thank you for your interest. If you have an idea for a future Amps podcast or just want to tell us what you want to hear more of, please get in touch. You can reach out to us via email at ampspodcast at gmail.com or via Twitter, which is at ampspodcast. We'd love to hear from you and thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts? Well, we're a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to check out the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.